welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia, and this is my co-host Morgan. Hello. So this week we're going to be talking about Casablanca, which I think basically everyone has seen. Hopefully you've all seen it, um, but if not, you're going to be getting a history lesson today <laughs> because obviously Casablanca is like an amazing movie in its own right, and I highly recommend watching or re-watching it because it's essentially perfect, but it's also very interesting from a kind of political and historical perspective both pertaining to our current political situation and also to the ways that filmmaking and propaganda in the public eye have changed like over the past 70 years. So this movie is basically a propaganda movie, you know, it's very good, but you know, it has like an intentional political message, which we're going to get into later on in the podcast. And just to give you some historical background, it came out at the beginning of 1943. So that's a year and a half or two years after the US entered World War II. And it was written and produced during a period when a lot of Americans were still kind of ambivalent about the idea of fighting the Nazis. And it was one of a lot of films that were made during that kind of mid-40s period that were intended to inform and persuade the American public to be more supportive of the war with the Nazis and kind of illustrate why they should fight. There was also a kind of series of more explicit propaganda documentaries titled Why We Fight, which were sponsored by the American government. And two of the writers of this film actually worked on that series. So there was like a really strong overlap there. And this whole idea of using movies as propaganda was a direct reaction to the German government's far more efficient propaganda machine, which had already been going for years. So I was actually kind of reminded of this film this week because Morgan and I were discussing like we need to talk about more movies by women directors and I was sort of looking up all these lists of what is the best film by a woman director and when you look at these top 10 lists a lot of them will list Triumph of the Will by Lenny (laughs) Reichmanstahl which is the most infamous Nazi propaganda film and is also apparently according to many film critics the best film by a woman. We are not going to be reviewing that film at any point. I've not seen it. I don't particularly feel any need to see it even if it is a very important work of uh, cinema but that came before the Second World War as we know it. You know it came in uh, mid-1938 and it was widely regarded to be incredibly effective and America's propaganda film machine worked in a different way. It was directed more at kind of informing the public about why Nazis were bad rather than being like we are the master race which is more kind of the way it happened from the other side but it took this four-year period for America to really get going and Casablanca is the pinnacle of their ability to combine propaganda with fiction. So I'm gonna hand this over to Morgan now because she actually watched the movie recently and can give us a little walkthrough of what happens in the story as a reminder. Yeah so Casablanca if anyone hasn't seen it or does need a refresher it takes place in Casablanca, obviously, and sort of focuses on Humphrey Bogart's character who plays Rick, who owns this sort of saloon, which is basically a gathering point for everyone in the city and therefore serves essentially as a non-ideological spot, right? So anyone can come in and do sort of business dealings there or the Nazis come in and have a drink. Um, And he positions himself as someone who does not have an ideology Although obviously the movie then challenges him on this repeatedly throughout the film. The action gets going when Ingrid Bergman shows up with her husband, who is an activist who has escaped from a concentration camp. And it becomes apparent that she and Rick Company Bogart had this tempestuous past where they had a sort of love affair in Paris and then he ran away from the Nazis and she was supposed to join him and then did not. 
and the big sort of question is about these exit visas that he has um, that will get people out of the country and whether he will give them to them or not because her husband is this very important sort of political figure in the resistance against the Nazis. And so the right thing to do is very obviously to let him go. And Rick doesn't want to initially because he's being petty. And then, you know, does she go or not? Because who does she love? And on and on and on. So the film does an amazing job of mixing this love story with the political underpinnings and sometimes not even underpinnings of this, at the time, contemporary political story. Obviously now it is a World War II story and then fits into a very specific genre. But a lot of it is very kind of iconographic to us now. And so I have seen this movie multiple times, although not in a while. But there are so many like lines in it that are just things that we say casually all the time that we don't realize are from this film. Obviously, here's looking at you, kid, is they say over and over again in this movie. That's kind of the thing that Rick says to Ilsa is um, Inger Bergman's character's name. But I don't even remember what they were, but especially in the sort of last couple scenes, like he has a speech that he says to her. And it, literally the whole thing is just sentences that have completely entered the vernacular. And this movie wasn't a huge hit at the time. It didn't do terribly, but it was kind of middling. But looking at it from the perspective of something that clearly completely entered the cultural imagination and has remained there is pretty interesting. And then also in terms of that relationship of Hollywood and film industry and the U.S. government at the time, as you were talking about, is pretty fascinating because essentially what happened there was that the U.S. government did insert itself into Hollywood in a big way that it hadn't before and hasn't really since, although there are always relationships. But they sent certain huge filmmakers like John Ford and Frank Capra overseas to film what was happening in the war and to sort of make videos they would put at the front of movies when people went to the movies and then also were working with people who were still in Hollywood to make these films. So there's this whole industry going on. But as we were saying, the sort of propagandic quality of this is much more subtly done than in certain other films and I don't think overwhelms the story so we can get into some of the details of that on a sort of artistic level and then go back to historical context later. Um, this movie opens with a sort of incredible scene from our modern context and it sort of shocked me by how explicitly political it was even though I've seen this before you kind of forget of people sort of chasing down refugees in the street who aren't supposed to be there, don't have papers. And it's so resonant to today. I was watching it and I was like, oh my God, like I can't believe that they, not even that they got away with it because this is clearly the movie that they were supposed to be making, but it's wild that this movie that's yeah, like- It's amazing romance. like how much the tables have turned because yeah. like nowadays, if you want to watch a movie that's about being a refugee or the refugee experience, Either it's going to be something incredibly far-flung that is not even slightly related to human life. You know, it's going to have to be like Star Wars or something. Or it's going to be a small, depressing indie movie or a small, inspiring indie movie that has a tiny release and barely anyone sees. And this was like a mainstream Hollywood movie that came out of the Hollywood system. It's a romance. And like, the whole idea of it is that it's trying to get the American audience to sympathise as much as possible with refugees, Right. The idea of that happening now is just, like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know exactly how many refugees there are in the world right now. I think I remember reading that there was soon going to be almost a billion people who were either immigrants or refugees or displaced, which is, like, a seventh of the population. And, like, I don't think we need to tell you the extent to which refugees are demonised 
and seen as like a kind of alien species in Western media and news coverage and politics. But this is literally a movie about refugees <laughs> in all of the lead roles. And as we'll discuss later, that also made up a lot of the cast. Yeah. And also the idea of government corruption in this is kind of interesting if we think about it as in some ways a propaganda film, right? And obviously it's not the US government. Yeah. So it's very but... like it's got like a very chill attitude that I also think is quite twentieth century because now yeah. you know, you do obviously see tons and tons of depictions, but it's either like there's some wholesome and great journalists who are rooting out bad things in the American system, or it's sort of like look at this downtrodden, terrible country somewhere else where everything's really corrupt. This is like a fairly fun, light-hearted <laughs> image. Like the person they have is the um, corrupt government officer, played by Claude Rains, and he's this charming French bit of a sleazebag, but you're meant to like him and you do like him, and he has this friendship with Rick. I was quite interested when I was sort of reading back over information about the making of this film that it was censored somewhat, which all movies were at that point. They removed a curse word and they also edited it slightly to make it less explicit that women are basically exchanging sexual favours for passport documents from this official, and I'm like, it is blindingly obvious in this film. <laughs> Like, if you're 12, you're obviously not going to realize it, but, like, it is explicitly part of the story. <laughs> yes. It's very clear what's going on there. Yeah, he's quite, he's quite French. Yeah. That's really the first <laughs> word that will come to mind. He's extremely Literally French. true, but very, very French. Which I guess then can, they can, you know, it's, it's the French doing this, right? <laughs> Like, that's fine. It's, yeah, I mean, there aren't, not there us. isn't really much of an American presence in the film. Like, it's explicitly yeah. about people who are kind of from all over, you know, Europe and Africa who are coming through Casablanca. They're all displaced. It's like a frozen city where people can't move forward or back, but it's neutral territory, so they're not going to get flung into a concentration camp, hopefully. It's an explicitly purgatorial yeah. space. And narratively speaking, that's essentially what... I mean, it literally is is what it is. The whole movie is purgatorial. They're all trying to figure out whether they're going to be carted off to somewhere unknown in a very bad way or whether they're going to escape to somewhere that hopefully that's better. Um, but most of the action is people kind of saying, will you be able to get me a visa? Will someone else be able to get me a visa? Yeah. And the MacGuffin, People arguing is, about some, like, the MacGuffin is that Rick has these two visas and is he yeah. going to give them to Elsa, her husband, or take it, Elsa with him and leave? But, like, nothing actually happens in this film. No. Except people talking about that. Yeah. It doesn't matter, but if you think about it, it's basically nothing happens. And I think that that's because you, they are in this state of stasis where nothing can happen because they're in purgatory. And... You have all of these people from all over these disparate countries who are all stuck there, clearly desperate to get out, trying to sell every valuable thing that they might own. And it's a, presented as quite a luxurious purgatory. <laughs> like, yeah. they're all, like, having drinks at Rick's because they kind of, you know, the, a movie like this yeah, has to Yeah, you can't have it way. be, like absolutely depressing but they're right. all you know the only thing anyone has to do is drink and gossip in this bar and potentially get right. arrested and hope that they're not going to run out of money and die yeah there's enough kind of subtle stuff that is quite dark that i think it's very effective like the women clearly sleeping with this guy to get the visas or like desperately trying to sell the stuff that they own or opening the movie with a scene of people getting chased out in the street that's quite tone setting right even if the whole movie doesn't follow on that exact path that is in your the back of your mind the whole time that you're watching, which I think is really effective. 
mean, it is explicitly a war movie, but they don't have to show war happening because yeah. you just know that it's there, which also makes sense because this came out in 1943. Like, everyone knew this was going on. They didn't need to see it. And you were telling me before we started recording, like, talking about the idea of a movie this timely being made now is just completely not plausible. Yeah, it takes place during a single year window, basically. Like, it had to be released very quickly. The studio was all making hundreds of films each year. And this was like, you know, we're going to release 10 romances and this is one of them. <laughs> but it's all so time specific because it's a period when people are totally uncertain about the outcome of the war. The reason it's positioned politically is because the US government was like, we need some filmmakers to persuade Americans that, <laughs> the, uh, that the war is a good idea because loads of people were just like, let's not interfere. Which is kind of one of the slightly less covered parts of US military history in the yeah. Second World War. But nowadays, obviously, it takes, first of all, it takes like two years to get the juggernaut of a major Hollywood movie out, but also nothing ever feels specifically contemporary. Like, we make films that are sort of, in a general sense, about Snowden, or in a general sense, about 9-11, but they take place years afterwards, and they're always very non-specific, and it makes them so much less effective. Yeah, I mean, even though this movie wasn't a huge hit, like, I can't imagine what going to see it would have been like. I feel like it would have just been just so germane to everything that was happening, which of course was the idea <laughs> behind making it. But uh, we should talk a little bit about the romance, which is of course the actual plot yes. <laughs> of the movie. And it's what people remember. Yeah. Obviously. I mean, you have like, Humphrey Bogart playing think about. Han Solo. Yeah. He's literally <laughs> playing Han Solo. <laughs> <laughs> that is what people remember from this. And it's really, really good. So it makes sense. But it is funny to watch it and be like, oh, right, this is actually a movie about war. Like, not that I've forgotten that, obviously, but it's really also about that. And I think that the scenes with Bogart and Bergman are so good that that tends to, not in terms of the quality of the movie, because it's really, really very well balanced, but in terms of you remembering it, that kind of overwhelms the film a little bit and it's also just nicer to remember like yeah, I mean it's like passionately Bergman's like <laughs> the soft focus face yes where, like whenever they turn the camera on her she's sort of glowing and everything yes. is fuzzy and beautiful through like <laughs> this haze <laughs> of Humphrey Bogart's drunken imaginings of what she looks like right. <laughs> it's almost like a kind of an unreliable narrator thing like if you imagine you're watching the movie through his lens yeah. she's actually like a regular looking woman in like age 13 <laughs> instead it's like this luminous kind of 19 year old supermodel <laughs> oh yeah oh man I think that's totally plausible reading of the uh the flashbacks yeah in particular but you had some interesting thoughts about the ending which i thought were good yeah so we're gonna assume everyone knows the ending yeah. of this movie is <laughs> i assume everyone has seen it if not it doesn't actually really no i mean like you still matter. need to watch the movie and we're not gonna yeah. care about spoilers here <laughs> so, um, <laughs> the central conflict is this idea that only two people can leave casablanca so rick is still in love with elsa and Elsa still kind of loves Rick, but also she loves her husband, who, when she and Rick were having an affair, her husband was in a concentration camp and she believed he was dead. But obviously when he came back, they got back together. Um, so in the kind of intervening period, she and her husband, who is this freedom fighter hero, have been traveling and are trying to get documents to leave. And Rick has the power to either give them the documents 
or he and Elsa can leave together and basically leave Victor Laszlo, her husband, behind. And Victor Laszlo is sort of, I think he is, basically he says that it would be okay if she left with him because he loves her so much. But at the same time, she's aware that her husband's work is completely essential. And the film does end with Rick eventually makes the decision he will let Elsa and Victor Laszlo go and they have this kind of romantic farewell. And the film ends with Rick and uh, Louis, the French police officer, agreeing to go and fight against the Nazis again. And like the conflict of this is kind of the reason why I decided we should be talking about this this week because I've seen so many people having conversations on social media over the past couple of weeks about suddenly being flung into this situation where even if you're kind of vaguely involved in activism or you're kind of you keep up with politics I think people of our generation aren't really myself included like people don't really understand about making sacrifices for I guess like political causes in danger unless you're a really serious activist and it's like it's something I kind of grapple with as well because I know that I'm not very active but I am sort of obsessively following news which is the worst possible combination like psychologically because <laughs> it's like well you're not making much of a difference but you do know that everything's terrible <laughs> and kind of the conflict of this movie is the idea of choosing duty and the right thing over love because even though Ilsa does love her husband her duty is that she needs to support him rather than go with the person that she maybe has like a higher romantic love for and that's Rick and also Rick has been sort of apathetic and he thinks that he's away from the central part of the war because he's in Casablanca and he's trying to remain neutral but it's pretty clear that he does hate the Nazis and he needs something that will kick him over into fighting them again basically and the film even though it's a romance in the traditional sense it's really intentionally romanticizing the idea of the fight and in the end the end of the love story it feels satisfying because they've made the right decision even though it's not kind of the traditional decision for true love and that's very different from your usual kind of war romance where the war is positioned as the conflict that makes the romance difficult like an atonement where it's like the war is getting in the way of the love story or it's the setting it's more like the love story and the war are the same thing and you have to make a decision and that's why the ending is so powerful and it's so great that they didn't kind of make any decisions to mess with that because they are like, look, they've all made the right decision and they're probably all going to die young. <laughs> but like, that's what you should do. And I'm like, well, this is uh, incredibly upsetting. <laughs> and it's also the same decision I've seen a lot of people publicly struggling with, like on social media over the past couple of weeks. I was like, this is very relevant. <laughs> well, it was interesting to me when you were talking about this before we recorded, not in the past two minutes, because I am... Uh, in a master's program for Victorian literature and my specialty is the novel and I had gone to a lecture that my supervisor did a few weeks ago that was for undergraduates that he was talking about Jane Eyre and then about the Victorian novel sort of more broadly and one of the things he said was talking about the idea of these novels that pose sort of these big social problems like Jane Eyre which was largely about the plight of women in Victorian England she doesn't have any freedom or power um, but there are many, many, many others. And many of these novels resolve the sort of question of these social problems with marriage, which is not actually a solution to the problem. It basically just sidesteps it. And it was one of those experiences that you often have, I think, in education where someone says something and you realize, oh, I actually knew that, but I had never articulated it to myself. Like, I've read enough of these books that I, I was like, oh, yes, but thank you for <laughs> saying this, but I understood it. And... I think a lot of the reason for that is that there kind of weren't obvious answers to that at that time. Not that there are now, right? But like, when Charlotte Bronte's writing Jane Eyre, it's not like 
the obvious answer at the end of Jane Eyre is like, I'm going to go start the suffrage movement. Like, what the fuck is she supposed to do? But with this, it kind of is the opposite thing, right? The solution by sort of that rubric would be they have this huge social problem and then to be like, well, I guess we should just be in love and what are you going to do? But it's such a sort of massive, urgent thing. Like, it's a war, not, you know, not the impression of women isn't important, but you know what I'm saying. And the sort of message it's sending is not that you can solve your problems by being in love with someone, but rather, no, actually, this is really important and you have to go fight for your principles, which I think is kind of a nice reversion of that trope because it is clearly engaging with a lot of that stuff in terms of like the yeah. the fitful romance and it's and also this, not yeah. really positioned as hollywood's typical view of heroism because in general even in films about war because you have to have a protagonist usually the protagonist is a hero and they're given some kind of problem that they can solve as a single person whereas this is more like these people are going to go and join a massive collective of people who are going to be trying to tackle the nazis but even though Victor Laszlo, Elsa's husband, is kind of portrayed as someone who's extremely important as a leader, he's actually more of a non-entity in the story and it's a more about the decision that Elsa and Rick are making. And Elsa knows that she will be more important and effective if she can support her husband and Rick is going to go off and continue doing his you know, gun running or whatever it was he was doing before. You never actually see them doing something which is going to make a huge impact. It's more like they've made the decision to go and join the collective battle which is basically the opposite of we're going to go and blow up the Death Star. <laughs> that, I guess, plays into the idea of it as a propaganda movie. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. Or in, even beyond sort of a purely just labeling it as propaganda, but also just as a film that's being made in the middle of a war, as opposed to us making a World War II movie now that's looking back at something. They don't know what's going to happen. So... It's much easier for us to say, or for Christopher Nolan, right, to say, I'm going to make a movie about Dunkirk, which is a discrete event. Obviously, by this point, Dunkirk had happened. It's not like that couldn't have been done. But the sort of context of something like Dunkirk or D-Day or whatever for us now is pretty much closed. Like, you can write about it, whatever. And if you're making a film in the middle of a war like this, like, you don't really know what's going to happen. There's You can't put a finite conclusion on it because it would feel fake because people are still out all the young men are still gone and then from a propagandic perspective they want to inspire people to do something even without necessarily having that payoff of like i blew up the death star (laughs) it's about the feeling of doing something constructive and concrete but also just the sort of the payoff isn't that you end up a war, but that you feel like you're doing something good. Which, in a way, is kind of how we all have to operate, because it's not all going to be over yeah. <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> Which I think is why the movie works, right? Yeah. Like, it, I mean, you are being manipulated, but it is kind of good propaganda. Like, yeah. What it's saying is essentially accurate, I think. Yeah. I mean, I... I'm not like an expert on what the Office of Information, whatever it was, all of their work, but by and large, they were kind of operating under the assumption that if they exposed how bad the Nazis were, then that would act as effective propaganda, as well as going for the more obvious sort of laying on with a trowel, actual propaganda, propaganda, what we would actually think of as that genre, right? So it's like, 
this is relatively subtle and it's quite interesting to compare to a lot of modern i guess not propaganda films but films that have like a fairly clear political message and you're just like jesus christ you know (laughs) (laughs) when you're watching not transformers but something along the lines of transformers where there's clearly been some input from like the u.s army and it's just like please just no this is all clearly (laughs) terrible But it just, yeah, it just feels really authentic. And like, I think before we wrap up, I'd love to talk a little bit about the cast. Because that is such kind of an integral part of this movie. It does have a really big cast, even though obviously we remember the two leads. And uh, Sam, the piano player, is like, play it, Sam, is the, you know, famous line everyone misquotes. (laughs) But it's like, it has this really extensive cast of bit parts. If you go on IMDb or the Wikipedia page, you will see that there's tons and tons of actors who have one or two lines. And it's almost like a documentary or a docudrama because they spend a lot of scenes in Rick's just sort of traveling around the tables and you see people's lives, you know, like pickpockets. And, you know, there's a Dutch couple who are trying to arrange to leave the city and that sort of thing. And a huge number of these actors were refugees or had actually fled the Nazis. You know, there were a couple of people in this movie who had actually been in concentration camps. And even in the main cast, Conrad Veidt was the guy who plays the lead Nazi character, who's really great. And he actually fled Germany when the Nazis took power himself. You know, during this 1940s period, there were quite a lot of German and Austrian actors in Hollywood playing the Nazi roles. And they were actually people who had fled the Nazis themselves. And they were sort of participating in this artistic effort against what they'd had to leave. And there was like Peter Lorre is uh, Hungarian and Jewish and he kind of traveled through the European film industry basically getting, I guess, like getting flushed out of different parts of Europe as they were being invaded by the Nazis and then he eventually came to the US. And the director, Michael Curtis, was a Hungarian Jewish immigrant, although he kind of left before the Nazis. And the big scene that's really famous, which I think we should probably, if we can find a YouTube clip, we will include it in the show notes, is the Marseillaise scene, which is one of the scenes everyone remembers because it's when everyone gets into Rick's bar and there's the um, dueling songs where people are singing the Marseillaise and then people are also singing this German anthem. And the woman who leads the singing is this actress named Madeleine Lebeau, who was a French refugee with a Jewish husband. So she's kind of crying in this scene and it's like real tears and it is for many of the people in there as well. And that's why it kind of seems so much more authentic than if it was just like, here's a film where some bad people are doing bad things. You know, it's like people are really experiencing it as it's being filmed, as well as people in the audience who are experiencing it as a piece of propaganda. Yeah, and I think also the fact that you do have this kind of diaspora quality is something that most World War II movies that are made now, kind of after the fact, don't get into as much and even though obviously the protagonists of the movie are like Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman although of course Ingrid Bergman was Swedish they having just that context I think helps a lot and gives it a real texture that a is just more interesting but also b in terms of understanding sort of the reach of the war is very effective and when you sort of layer on the fact that a lot of these people were actually experiencing this or had experienced it. It, I think, becomes quite powerful, obviously, especially so if you know that, but I think it does come through on a lot of the performances. But the sort of difference, again, there between a lot of the movies that were made after the fact where you have this nostalgic glow on what was happening is really interesting because, of course, we watched Casablanca now and it feels very nostalgic to us. Like, somehow something in the DNA of that movie has this nostalgic quality to it and I think it's that it's about a relationship that happened in the past right and so the people involved in the central 
story are experiencing this nostalgic moment for something that has passed. But the actual political context of the movie when it came out was extremely current. But now when we watch it, that kind of nostalgic romance and then also the nostalgia of the war, which America has so much of in this weird way, get sort of intertwined in a very sort of odd... It's the war, it's sort of Golden Age Hollywood, and also the actual text of the film in this really kind of weird and I don't think unproblematic way. But when you're watching it, your just brain can't help in this sort of like chemical way. And it's, it's really interesting to read about the creative background of the film in that context because... I mean, even if you just look at like the Wikipedia page for Casablanca, they have a section that's about, you know, the writing process where they took a play and then people rewrote it and then other people came in and rewrote it and then people came back and rewrote it again. And then the directors and the producers were pulling scenes in and out. And it's practically inconceivable that a film with that many warring creative factions actually turned out this good. The flashback scenes were actually one of the things that someone, like either the director or the producer, wanted to remove, and we're just like, we don't need these. <laughs> and you know, and like the final line was added in post production. Like they filmed "We Were Going to Be Great Friends" line separately, like months after they finished it, and then they originally also wanted to have like an epilogue um, with Rick and Louis together, like <laughs> off fighting the Nazis somewhere. And it's like this film dodged so many bullets. <laughs> it is practically. I mean, it feels like it was some kind of weird, like hand of fate situation to me. Make it actually oh good. Oh my god. Especially, I mean, it's Imag- kind of, it makes sense that there'd be one that's like a fluke amid literally, there was something like 500 of these kind of government issue right. films that came out during the war, but this is the one. <laughs> I just can't imagine the how the movie would even function without those flashbacks. And I don't usually like flashbacks, but. You just have people I think... looking nostalgically at each other and kissing in a bar. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, they do a very good job of it. The two of them are, whew, but I don't know <laughs> that it would totally come off. <laughs> yeah, all those horror stories you read about those productions from just the olden days. <laughs> I mean, not that it's any better now, really. It's just bad in a different way. Yeah. It's not really uh, hard. It's more just like, how on earth did this system function? <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> They produced a lot of garbage. It's just that we only watched the That's the thing. It's like we watched the ones that have survived after after 17 years. That's always how it works. But so kind of usually in our podcasts of older films, we include a review or two, like yieldy time reviews. And I have a slightly different review from Morgan that I've dug up. Um, (laughs) Really? Yes. I have a document from 1943 from the Office of War Information. Uh-huh. So, so the Office of War Information is the bureau that um, both produced and censored and kind of essentially reviewed films for their political content. Yeah. And um, we're going to post it in the show notes. It's in. It's from like a university archive. And a handful of people from this office watched it in 1942, a couple of months before it was on general release. Like the first page of the document is a plot summary. And the second page is kind of a bullet point list of the ways in which it's like a good depiction. Um, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's it's described as from the standpoint of the War Information off, uh, Program, Casablanca is a very good picture about the enemy, those whose lives the enemy has wrecked, and those underground agents who fight him unremittingly on his own ground. The war content is dramatically effective, many excellent points are scored, and then it lists with a paragraph under each of these points. The film presents an excellent picture of the spirit of the underground movement. Some of the chaos and misery which fascism and war has brought are graphically illustrated. It is shown that personal desires must be subordinate to the task of defeating fascism. It is brought out that many French are by no means cooperating wholeheartedly with the Nazis. 
America is shown as the haven of the oppressed and homeless. Some of the scope of our present conflict is brought about and the film presents a good portrayal of the typical Nazi. And each of these points has like a little description from the film and a review of why it's effective. <laughs> and I was just reading this and I was like, first of all, this is all stuff that I picked up on, but it's really interesting to look at this from the perspective of some government stooge being like, well, this will be effective. And I'm like, my God. <laughs> well, also, those are, that's like the exact kind of document studios produce about screenplays <laughs> now like literally you'll have like the front page that's like a summary and then have them be like well here are the various things that work about the screenplay and here's like this strip coverage like i used to have to not write this but like refuse to well like the people who were working in this matter. office were largely from hollywood right and they like, kind of shipped them into dc <laughs> yeah like this it's just it's all the same nothing has changed in decades and decades and decades the focus is just maybe a little bit different for the propaganda wing <laughs> oh my god yeah wow what what documents will be in the archives about the shit we're producing i shudder there will be no archive <laughs> no 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 it's sad but true oh my god well that's a beautiful note to end on i think <laughs> Thank you for joining us on one of my very most over-invested, over-invested. So I think yes. when I suggested this topic last week, I sent Morgan this document of all my ideas. I was just like, I've been thinking a lot about Casablanca lately. I'm amazed we managed to put them all in in such a succinct fashion, quite frankly. I think it was the fact that it was so organized yeah. meant that we were just like, boom, boom, boom. There you go. Um, next week, we are going to continue our tangentially current affairs related films with American Psycho which I have never seen. So this will be an interesting experience. We were thinking about films directed by women because I don't think we've done one yet, which is profoundly embarrassing. I think we've done several from uh, our London Film Festival. Yes, yes. And I think we've maybe done one other, but over the course of 30 podcasts, it's not an impressive uh, (laughs) impressive ratio. (laughs) And I think you suggested this among a couple others, and I thought, yes, because I believe Donald Trump was partially the inspiration for that character. Oh my um, god. Which is... Really? Just... Oh yeah. Yeah, Jesus or like Christian Bale was thinking of him when he was doing... I mean, there's there's a connection. Oh my god. So, <laughs> I feel that this is a timely film. Yeah, so we will be doing that. I I can't wait to feel horrible. <laughs> it's a Please pretty join good us. movie. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I can't wait. I've been meaning to see it for like... 10 plus yeah. years I like my, my ideal it, so. way of discussing that film which unfortunately we can't do next week because morgan has not seen the films that are required but i see that as like a trilogy of films with american psycho the matrix and fight club and in the future i will make morgan watch the matrix but i think those 33 films together are like late 90s early 2000s american masculine crisis in a nutshell well i have seen fight club yeah which, Which is obviously I, the most explicit. Even I knew yeah. that those two were... Yeah, so we can we can get into that a little bit. But that will be next week. So tune back in for that. Uh, but thank you, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. It's how we find new listeners. And you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, and on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.